You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I'm sitting here uh, late at night. Um, hang out a sec. There's my uh, <laughs> there's my late night Mountain Dew. Uh, we haven't done this for a while. Uh, you and me sat down and just had a little chat. Uh, everything's kind of uh, been a little bit more. Uh, uh, scripted around here and my opportunities to kind of sit down and, and just uh, do a mind dump have, uh, have been fewer and farther between. And I lament that, but uh, today we're going to sit down and have a little bit uh, of a chat. Um, we had a few things lined up uh, for the podcast and they actually all fell through, which, which I kind of like, I actually have uh, some things that I would like to do with the podcast that would get a little bit back to the, the roots of, you know, yesteryear. Um, <laughs> there's a funny story. If you've been with us for a long time, you've heard me tell uh, in the very – before I started the podcast, I had a friend uh, who I was having dinner with, and I, we were talking about Strong Towns, and everything was so exciting. Back then, we had, you know, 400 people following us on Facebook. Uh, we now have like 40,000. Um, you know, we had like 50 people reading our site. It's like, this is incredible. And um, I talked about wanting to start a podcast. And this friend of mine, who's a, a dear, sweet person, she said, oh, please just don't tell me it's going to be you talking. <laughs> um, and I tried for a long time. Like, no, it wasn't just going to be me talking. And then uh, it kind of became that a little bit. And for a while there, it was, it was that, and, and, and we've kind of gotten into a swing of having other people on and chatting. And, and I find that stimulating and exciting too. I think my staff kind of pushes me sometimes to, uh, to chat with people that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I won't say that I, I don't find interesting, but you know, for me, the, the, it, having to sit down and talk to somebody, I'm a, I'm like a horrible introvert unless it's a, it's a topic that I'm just dying to, to learn about. Uh, sometimes it's hard for me and, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time prepping and a lot of time trying to figure out a, a, a narrative where I want the conversation to go. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think it does, I think it does well, but I kind of miss these days. Uh, so let's, let's do this. And I, I've been thinking about this question a lot. Um, and part of it is the, the dialogue we had with Johnny Sanfilippo on the Strongtown site, uh, a, a month or so ago. And, uh, part of it is, uh, this dialogue I've been having with a group, uh, called the market urbanists, uh, in a, in a private Facebook chat that we've been having. Um, you see, it, it's, it's a very strange place that we occupy. And, and let me go through Johnny's stuff first, because first of all, you guys have heard Johnny before on the podcast a couple of times. I, ad I adore Johnny. I, I think he's an incredible person and I I've just learned so much from him. I, I, I just like him a lot and I like spending time with him and I like hearing from him and I like reading his stuff. And it's almost like my, um, 
uh, I, I was going to curse there, but I don't do that on this podcast. He's a little bit like my BS meter, right? Um, like, Hey Chuck, uh, no, <laughs> no, you're, uh, you're, you're going too far out there. Uh, come back, you know, stay grounded in reality. And, you know, Johnny has, uh, has, has struck out and tried to do a, a couple things in Cincinnati from a housing development standpoint, became very frustrated with that. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Um, but you know, his, him and I have very different backgrounds. My background, uh, since 1995, when I got out of undergraduate school has been working in the private sector for government. Uh, I have not been a government employee, but have always, you know, essentially, I have gotten paid uh, up until I, I made this leap of faith over to Strong Towns full time. My career, my salary has always come from companies, either companies that I work for or companies that I owned and ran uh, that derive their revenue almost exclusively from governments. And so, in a sense, I have been very near like the inner workings of government. And so for better or for worse, part of the lens of uh, my thought process and the, the, the prism that our conversation goes through has a lot to do with governments and, and the working of government. So one of Johnny's critiques of me was, you know, hey, um, you're uh, kind of trying to change the system that doesn't want to change and isn't going to change um, I think you would be better off doing perhaps something else. And my gosh, I think that that is a fair critique. There are days when I just bang my head against the, uh, against the, the wall and say, what am I, what am I doing? Um, but I will say I get the opportunity now to travel around the country, to meet with cities, to meet with public officials, to meet with staff members and I am more and more running into people that I think are great leaders. I think are transformational people. I think are uh, great people that are trying to do great things in very difficult circumstances. I was in the city of Barberton in, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, just outside of Akron in Ohio, and I got to meet the mayor there. Now, I'm going to say something, and I... I I, I'm going to say this and I don't mean this in like a derogatory way. Here's a guy that was not, um, you know, he, he, he didn't blow, he didn't, he's not going to blow anybody away. Right. This wasn't like someone who was overflowing with enthusiasm, uh, or, you know, deeply intellectual, just a good, solid, uh, small town, mid-sized town kind of mayor who, you know, clearly cared about the place. Uh, clearly was thoughtful and had thought about the different options in front of him and in front of the city that he was leading and felt a real civic responsibility to not just continue to do the stuff that everybody else had done that had gotten him into the, the messes that he is dealing with. And so that, that's my, that's my, uh, that's my way of, uh, you know, I, I, I hope the guys, you know, if he's listening, doesn't feel uh, put down by that. Um, cause what I'm really trying to say is that we're getting to the point where strong towns thinking and a different attitude on cities is not something that you have to be an extreme outlier to have. It's starting to become something that is seeping into 
the mainstream conversation about how we run cities, how we manage places, how we make decisions. Now, it still is a minority opinion, and it still is being overwhelmed by uh, the kind of centralized devices that have uh, all the money, all the regulation, all the standing. You know, we, we have a long ways to go, but I can go to a place like Barberton, which, you know, is is off the beaten path, so to speak. And you've got people there talking strong towns and they're talking better block and they're talking tactical urbanism and they're talking, how do we make small changes in neighborhoods so that we can get incremental development patterns going again so that we can start to move things in the right direction. And I'm, I'm inspired by it. And so maybe I'm a little naive. Maybe I'm a little uh, trusting. Um, maybe I'm a little too optimistic at times. Um, but I'm seeing real progress happen. I really am. And, and yes, the problem is overwhelming. But remember, strong towns, we, we've not said we're here to solve this problem, right? We're, we're not here. Uh, we're not going to be able to solve these problems. What we're going to be able to do is come up with ways that we can start to uh, deal with them. And when the time comes, when we're needed, when things get difficult, uh, we will have a reasonable, thoughtful, alternative approach, really so that the country doesn't go crazy. Um, I, you know, if you've been with us a while, you've, you've heard me talk about this, and it, it sometimes gets a little dark and, and scary. But you know, I, I think maybe now there's a little bit more credibility after the, uh, the last 12 months of electioneering and governing um, that, you know, this country stands a decent chance of going nuts. Uh, you start to pile on to uh, the confusion and the consternation that we have now. Cities that are failing, pensions that aren't being paid, firefighters and police officers being laid off, uh, you know, roads and streets that aren't being maintained. Just a, a, a basic general overall acceleration of the decline that we have seen now for uh, really 15, 20 years at the local government level. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not hard to imagine a certain level of panic and, uh, you know, borderline hysteria creeping into our, our national psyche. We as strong towns advocates, we as people who are, are trying to uh, advocate for a different way of doing things uh, need to be there. Uh, we need to be the, uh, the level head, uh, the ones who say, you know what? Uh, this may seem bad, but here's how we start to work our way out of this. This brings me to the, the thing I really want to discuss. Uh, and hang on a sec, because I'm going to take a, a drink of this sweet Mountain Dew. I, uh, I've cut down uh, quite a bit, for those of you who care. Um, I always get, whenever I, whenever I, I you know, indulge on my favorite, uh, you know, family of beverages and it's not just Mountain Dew. I actually am drinking a diet Mountain Dew, which is probably the one I, I drink most often. But, uh, the, you know, if you're a Mountain Dew aficionado, there's a, there's a whole line of Mountain Dews from, from breakfast Dew to sports drink Dew to, um, you know, the late night, uh, I need to go to bed in a couple hours Dew, um, which is what I'm drinking right now. Uh, so, you know, I always hear from all of you, on how you know terrible things are, and I, I actually might after this do a, a podcast just about 
uh, one year of living in our new house in town. Um, I'm proud to report to you, you people are worried about my Mountain Dew consumption. Uh, I'm down 10 pounds since May. Um, we got through the winter, and I actually planned to bike a lot more in the winter than I did, but we got through the winter, and I got back out on the bike and, uh, and you know, have just been a lot more active this summer. I've hardly driven at all when I'm home. It's really fantastic. Uh, and uh, I'm down, yeah, I'm down 10 pounds. And, um, you know, cut back a little bit on the Mountain Dew, but I'm still, you know. Cut me some slack too. I don't drink and I don't, uh, I don't, I don't do any really like horrible things. Um, but I do enjoy Mountain Dew now and then. So the question that I've been struggling with for a long time, and I, I'm kind of comfortable with where I've arrived, but let me give you the question. The question is, you know, what, what do you do if you don't know the answer? What, what, uh, if if you can clearly explain or understand the problem, or at least you know understand the the factors that have have driven us to uh, the the problem or the the dilemma that we face, what what do you do if you don't know the answer? And I'll go back to the early days of Strong Towns. I mean, this was this was the critique that I faced back in 2011, 2012, 2013. Just harsh. Just almost cruel around here in my hometown. Okay, Chuck, you've identified this problem. We agree with you. We see it. Like, right, we're not going to argue that this isn't a deal. But what would you do? You, you, you and, and basically the, uh, the, the kind of line of discussion was, you don't have a right to stand up and say that this is a problem. That essentially, like, we're doing something wrong if you can't tell us what you would do differently. You know, then you're just a naysayer. Then you're just a bomb thrower. Then, then you're just a, a cheap critic. And I don't think that's fair. And I, I spent some time uh, kind of arguing that that's not fair. Like, I, I don't think, you know, huh, if the plane is about to crash, you, 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 you don't have to know how to fly the plane to stand up and say, hey, uh, we need to do something different, right? I mean, I, I, I don't think having a, a, a 10-point plan uh, to turn things around is a prerequisite for, uh, you know, being able to stand up and say like, this isn't going in the right direction. So, uh, I, I thought that was completely unjustified. That didn't stop it from happening. And really I, in many ways it became like a, an intellectual sticking point for me because I knew, and I understood that I could, uh, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put this in a way where uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm not trying to say this to make myself look good by comparison, but, but I am going to give you some insight on you know, the way I think about things that is going to make, I think, other organizations look inferior, at least in my mind. I understood I understood way back in 2008 when I started writing this stuff. I understood when I ran my own consulting company doing planning around the state of Minnesota that if I just came up with like a three-point plan that I could make tons of money, right? Like if I just went into cities and said, look, I know the answer. You just need to do ABC. And, it, it, you know, if I could make ABC palatable, easy, something that they would be willing to pay for, something that, you know, they could do, uh, something that was happy, something that people could embrace that, you know, people would do it and I could make a lot of money. 
right? I, I could get paid to do that. My problem was, and I've said many times, like I'm not a very good consultant. Uh, I'm not a very good fundraiser. <laughs> and part of what keeps me from being a good consultant and a good fundraiser is that I, I had this intellectual problem with doing that. Um, I, I will specifically pick on the Complete Streets movement today. Um, not because I don't like them. I, I like them and I, I, I find that they're allies in many things and, and we intellectually see uh, you know, the same on many, many, many things. But I've never been a fan of uh, Complete Streets. Um, I've, I've, I've thought that it was a very, uh, it was an overly simplistic approach to an incredibly complex problem. And that if the world embraced complete streets in the way that the complete streets advocates were going to uh, or, or wanted them to, uh, that we wouldn't have better outcomes. We wouldn't have noticeably better outcomes, um, but we would have more calcified bureaucracy. We would have engineers building ridiculous things and blowing up budgets. We would have all these other things that, that I saw as like related problems, but not core problems. And so m my struggle has always been that, you know, the, the simple solution to A doesn't address B, C, D, E, F, G, and then all the other things that I'm not smart enough or, or savvy enough uh, to actually have identified as problems um, that, that would show up later when we started to, to do A. And I, understanding this, I just struggled. I, I sometimes just like was on a, a hamster wheel and just like running and not going anywhere intellectually, right? And so when people started to beat me over the head with this, and I had a few local critics that were just ugh, mean people, just mean people. When they started to beat me over the head with this, you know, what would you do, Chuck? You know, you're so smart. I struggled because I did not have like a five-point plan. I, I didn't have things that, uh, you know, I could just say like, here, do this. Even got to the point where in 2013, I did a tour of uh, Idaho. Um, John Reuter, who is on our board today, uh, at that point was the executive director of a group called the League of uh, Conservation Voters, I think, of Idaho. And he really liked our message, wanted to get it in front of a bunch of the communities that he was working with. And he, his organization sponsored us to come out and, and travel around the state. Uh, incidentally, it was Andrew Burleson, who is our board chair now, uh, John Reuter, who is on our board, and myself uh, driving around Idaho for a, a week. And the kind of recurring critique that came out of giving that presentation 15 times uh, to, uh, you know, audiences big and small and uh, everything in between. Uh, the ongoing critique that I got from these two gentlemen who saw this presentation over and over and over and understood it is, hey, you have to, you have to give people, uh, you know, you got to give people some direction here. And, you know, it was a, it was a friendlier version of the mean critique I was getting back home here, right? And I tried, I really tried. If you go back, it, it almost makes me laugh now. Uh, when I go back and look at those early days of the curbside chat, because it, it was me trying to do something that uh, I knew would make our message, um, 
you know, having a three point plan or a four or a five point plan or whatever it was like, here's what we should do differently. Uh, here's, you know, five things that would give our movement a, a lot of legs, a lot of momentum. Uh, it would make it easier to do an elevator speech. It would make it easier to present to foundations. It would make it easier to, uh, you know, talk to donors and whatever about, um, it would make it a lot easier, right? If I, if I just had something like that, if, you know, the analog to complete streets, I could go and say, look, every street should be complete so that people can walk alongside of it and bike alongside of it and people can drive. And if we just, uh, you know, thought of everybody, it would work fine. And I can give that speech in an elevator and I find it completely, uh, vacant because it doesn't, you know, deal with (laughs) the myriad of things that come out of it. Right. So, so if you go back and look at like the curbside chat presentations and there's a couple of them online from like 2013 or whatever. Um, and I can go back and look at the slides cause I, I've saved everyone uh, separately so I can go see what I did, you know, four years ago, five years ago, I used to have this set of recommendations. And the first one, <laughs> the first one was stop doing what you're doing, <laughs> which for me, it was, you know, an honest, legitimate recommendation. Like, hey, I'm here showing you that the way you're building is bankrupting yourself. Uh, the first thing you should do is stop doing that. And the funny thing is, is, you know, it, we, we very rarely got beyond that one. I mean, I had other ones like, you know, take an inventory of where you're at so you actually understand how deep the problem is. Uh, start to, I, I, I know that it ended with triage <laughs> and I had this whole speech about how, um, you know, out on the, uh, and, and, uh, you know, here's me like tearing up in front of people like, Hey, uh, out on the battlefields, the red cross come across and here's these soldiers and they've sacrificed everything and they're laying, they're dying and bleeding to death. And, and you don't have enough resources to take care of them all. So what do you do? You, you do triage and, you know, uh, look, when we look at our cities and we have so much we have to do and not enough money to do it, we have to do triage. And you know what? It's actually going to be easier than dealing with soldiers on a battlefield. So let's go do this. And for me, it was, it was intellectually honest, uh, but it wasn't, it it didn't have any legs, right? It, It was really hard and people couldn't, uh, people couldn't be inspired by it and they couldn't grasp grasp it. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Okay. Chuck, great. Stop everything that we're doing. Uh, go and be a bunch of accountants and, and figure out like how screwed we are. And then, uh, spend the next few years going around telling everybody, um, like, we're not going to fix your road. We're not going to fix your road and we're not going to fix your road. Um, and sorry, that's just the way it is. Um, yeah, I know we have money now. I know we have a budget. I know things aren't bad, but you know, we're looking in the future and this guy told us things are going to get bad. So this is what you're going to have to do. Um, suck it up, you know, sorry, your road's not going to be fixed. Um, that, that was, you know, intellectually honest for me, but, uh, but, but, you know, not going to happen. Not, not, not a workable way to approach the problem. So the question that I struggled with was what? do you do? And, you know, I'm going to stand here and tell you tonight that I I don't know what the future is going to bring. I mean, I, I, I laugh at these people who, you know, paint these very vivid pictures of what the autonomous car is going to mean to, to life in the future. And then, you know, other people who 
you know, get all this huge fetish over the hyperloop or, you know, whatever Elon Musk's like latest thing is, um, you know, I, 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 sure. Fine. You know, maybe those realities will come to pass, but you know, maybe they won't. I, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of in the, uh, Nassim Taleb school. Well, obviously in many ways, but, but one of the ways I am is, uh, this notion that, if something has existed for a long time, it is more likely to be in existence, you know, a long time from now than something that is brand new. Uh, I like to think of this in terms of books, you know, the Harry Potter series, my daughters have, have gone through. And I think those are fantastic books. They're, they're amazing books. Um, if you've never read the Harry Potter books, you don't really have to be a fantasy person uh, to really enjoy them. Uh, they're very good books. Um, that being said, uh, what has a greater chance of being around and being widely read and widely distributed a hundred years from now, uh, the Harry Potter series or the Lord of the Rings series? Um, which one has a greater chance of being around, uh, a hundred years from now? Um, let me think of like a, you know, a, a, a book like, the, you know, the, the grapes of wrath, um, you know, or a, a book like, well, let me just go really old school, you know, the old Testament, which one is, which one has the the greater likelihood of being around. Now you can say like the grapes of wrath are probably going to, you know, outlive or outsurvive Harry Potter. If you had to, if you had to bet today, even though Harry Potter is this fantastic book and it's, you know, caught on and it's wonderful. Um, you know, the grapes of wrath will probably outdo it. Why? Because, you know, th there's this long track record, right? You can look back and see like it's been around a long time. Uh, that's a pretty good indication of its ability to endure. Um, the old Testament is someone's probably going to be able to get a copy of the old Testament, uh, 500 years from now. And we can say that with some confidence because it's been around a heck of a long time. It's not going to go away. You're going to be able to find it. Right. So when we look out into the future and say, you know, how different is it going to be from today? I'm not going to argue that it's not going to be different. Um, but the idea that we wouldn't be living in houses on blocks, driving cars, parking on the street, walking on sidewalks to shops. And, you know, this has been around thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's a possibility that it will be different, but, but I, I, you know, I wouldn't put big money on that. So what, but what do you do if you don't know, right? What do you do if you don't know? Um, Nassim Taleb has talked about this and I, I think he has it right. Um, and, and this is really in many ways the basis for my obsession with building incrementally. Um, it, it actually is the, the reason that I started to understand how people used to build. You know, I, I, I would sit and look at uh, development patterns, uh, you know, old places, places that had gone to uh, different levels of maturity before we hit this suburban experiment. And after reading Nassim Taleb, uh, it started to occur to me how this was done incrementally. Um, Nassim Taleb, the statement that he says is the, the way you probe uncertainty is incrementally. The way you, the way you probe 
uh, an uncertain future is to proceed incrementally. And, and this is particularly true in systems that what he calls fourth quadrant systems. Uh, sometimes in complexity theory, they're called complex adaptive systems, systems that uh, have different parts that each themselves are able to receive feedback and act independently on that feedback and then interact with each other. So uh, cities, uh, economies, uh, climate, uh, all of these things are complex uh, adaptive systems. And Nassim Taleb's uh, notion is that when you don't know what is uh, the future holds, the way you try to figure that out, the way you try to figure out what the best path is, is you proceed incrementally. And if you think about that, and, and let me use let me use climate as an analogy, and then I'll use the economy as an analogy, because I, I actually think that <laughs> in, in a way that will appeal to those of you that are left of center and those of you that are right of center will both grasp then these different uh, analogies. The big argument with climate change, and when you get down to the central core of it and get rid of the... Uh, the certainty that kind of tends to come out when you get into the political realm. If you actually get to the, the scientific realm, uh, there's a lot less certainty, um, but that certainty can't be expressed politically because of the, the political positions people have taken. Um, but if you, if you actually get into the science, what you'll see is that uh, we have dramatically changed uh, the inputs into the climate. Um, we have, through the burning of fossil fuels, uh, released enormous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere, something that is, in a sense, unprecedented. There is no, uh, you know, there is no precedent for this in the history of humanity, uh, you know, of the earth. You can't go back and really point to times in the, uh, in the record uh, as, you know, as best we can reconstitute it, where, uh, literally millions and millions of years of organic material have been brought to the surface, burned, and turned into, uh, you know, turned into carbon. Um, you know, I'm sorry, turned from carbon into, uh, into, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, carbon released from uh, the ground into the atmosphere. Uh, when we look at this, we have to say, like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know, uh, you know, what this massive impact will be. Um, we can guess. We can model. Uh, we can have certain levels of probability uh, with different outcomes. But we don't really know. And the interesting thing about climate science, and, and I'll probably tick a whole bunch of people off right now, but, um, you know, you can go back not too far and, and scientists were looking at similar data, uh, you know, predicting ice ages. Um, you know, the, there is a lot of variability. Um, the thing about the climate when it comes to putting large amounts of carbon in is that what you've got is you have a system that is a complex adaptive system at a certain level of equilibrium. And you have just jarred that. You just put a massive, massive change into it. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the outcome will be. Nassim Taleb will say, uh, the way you explore that uncertainty, the way that we should have proceeded, is more slowly and incrementally. And had we done that, uh, essentially the feedback from uh, you know, negative impacts uh, would have been felt a, a lot more quickly. 
We can say the same thing about the economy. Um, you know, we had this, uh, this golden age of economic theory where we said, you know, we can counteract recession. Uh, we can smooth out the business cycle. Uh, we can, uh, you know, through uh, different uh, fiscal and monetary uh, tinkerings with the system, uh, we can get rid of those downturns and, you know, have the, uh, have, have the upturns be more prosperous for everyone. And what we have seen is that, you know, over time we had this long period of moderation and then, uh, these wild fluctuations really since the, the early 1980s, we've seen these wild corrections and wild fluctuations and each one demands an even uh, more robust and, and more kind of violent and wild response. Um, Someone with Taleb's mindset, someone with a uh, an anti-fragile mindset would say, uh, we we should not not have, in a sense, intervened at that level uh, in decades past. Um, because what we did is we created essentially, um, you know, a, a fragile situation. We built up, uh, we, we put off volatility. Um, we put off volatility. We robbed ourselves of small volatilities and exchange that for large, you know, unpredictable levels of volatility. Um, we should have not tinkered with it. We should have left well enough alone and, you know, tried to, uh, if we had a, a brand new theory for how things work, try to, uh, to test it and tinker with it and do it in small ways to see what worked. I think both of those examples, the climate and the burning of, you know, millions of years of carbon and, you know, the economy coming out of the Depression in World War II, uh, both of those kind of also point to human weakness, right? Um, we can burn fossil fuels, so we do. We can intervene with the economy, so we do. Burning of fossil fuels has, has brought about, uh, you know, unparalleled levels of prosperity in many places. I mean, the fact that we're able to talk today uh, like this, if, if we hadn't had the industrial economy, if we hadn't had the burning of fossil fuels, would, would we be having this conversation today? I, I think it's very likely that we wouldn't, right? If we hadn't, uh, you know, intervened in the economy in the years after World War II um, and smoothed out the business cycle, would we have had this period of robust growth? Would we have had this period uh, of, you know, uh, prosperity that has done more worldwide to bring people out of poverty than really anything else that's ever been done. I, I, I think you can make a strong case that it, it hasn't. And so as humans, we're kind of dis predisposed to, to, to do great things when we see challenges in front of us, when we have uh, the means at our disposal to go out and do something, um, you know, it, it's hard for us to not do it, right? Um, this is the, I, I can't remember the, the movie. Well, we could even go like Lord of the Rings on you, right? Uh, there's that scene in, in the first, the fellowship of the ring where, um, they realize that Gollum is following them. They're in the mines of Moria. And, uh, and Frodo says, you know, I wish Bilbo had, had killed him. Um, and Gandalf says, you know, who, who are you to decide, you know, who are you to decide, uh, who should live and die? Do you have that power? I think as humans, um, as, you know, frail people, uh, it's very hard for us to resist that 
temptation, that power, right? Like we can mine fossil fuels and change the world. We can intervene in the economy and make things better. We can, and I'm going to get to cities now, uh, we can go out and solve the problems that we see in front of us. Um, we can, for example, build high-speed rail all over California uh, to connect all these cities in a way that you know is going to be, uh, you know, we can make all the excuses, right? It's going to be good for the environment. It's going to reduce congestion. It's going to uh, connect our cities, you know, make them stronger and healthier and get all this investment. We can go out and uh, build highways uh, through the middle of the neighborhoods and the, 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 you know, the same exact mindset that thinks, you know, billions of dollars of high-speed rail today um, would be great is the same exact mindset uh, that you know, 60, 70 years ago said running highways through the middle of the cities is a, is a great thing. Um, look what it's going to do. It's going to you know, get rid of uh, all these uh, environmental problems we have in our cities. It's going to spread people out. It's going to uh, you know, reduce all that congestion, all that nasty, uh, that nasty density. Uh, we're going to have people who are healthier. They're going to have more green space, more air, more light. Uh, they're going to be closer in touch with nature. There, there are all these things that we told ourselves, you know, would, would make things better. And by the way, this was not a left or right thing. Uh, I don't even think like high-speed rail is necessarily a left or right thing today when you get to a, a state like California. Um, you know, you, you, you have a, a, a essentially a, a problem or a series of problems and you have this big, you know, kind of silver bullet solution or set of one or two things that you can do to attack this complex problem. So you go out and do it. And then you wind up with all the side effects, right? What do you do if you want to attack the problem and you don't want the side effects? You do what Nassim Taleb suggests. You, you probe uncertainty incrementally, incrementally. Here's the fascinating thing about this. This is what our ancestors did. And when I say ancestors, I, I, I mean ancestors in like the largest possible sense of the word. You can go back to the earliest civilizations that we've been able to excavate in the Fertile Crescent. And what you can see is a development pattern that, you know, in layout and design looks eerily like ours, uh, but was developed incrementally, was discovered in a sense incrementally. And you can picture these people uh, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, trying things and, you know, uh, tinkering with this and tinkering with that. And, and, you know, over successive generations, figuring out that if we set things up like this, it worked a little bit better. And if we laid things out in this way, it, it, it moved the air a little bit better, or it allowed light in better, or it allowed us to accomplish, you know, defense better, or allowed us to uh, to interact with each other better. Um, it allowed us the uh, the ability to actually, you know, work together as a community a little bit better. You 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 start to look at these things, and you realize that all of that complexity that is the human experience, right? Um, not just what the engineers look at, you know, the pipe and the street and the sidewalk and not what the planners look at, the setbacks and, you know, where the boulevard is and uh, what your floor area ratio is and your sign. The actual, like, complexity of humanity, the, the lives we live, how we interact with each other, 
how we decide where to spend our money, our time, our energy, um, how we uh, view, you, you, you realize that all these things, people thousands of years ago figured out slowly over time by iteration, by trial and error, by probing uncertainty incrementally. Now, they didn't have an op. That, I mean, this is the this is the 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 thing that is uh, to me like a huge. Ins- they didn't have an option, right? They didn't know that they could dig up a bunch of fossil fuels and burn them. They didn't have combustion engines. They didn't know that they could get cranes and build you know twenty story towers. They 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 didn't have that capacity. And so, in a sense, they were forced to learn incrementally because they didn't have another alternative, right? But today we, we have the alternative, right? We can, we, can, we can discipline ourselves to work incrementally, uh, or we can kind of lurch from massive silver bullet to massive silver bullet, uh, trying you know, these things um, in generation after successive generation, and then dealing with the you know, really harmful and devastating side effects. I think to a degree that our cities are in the process of being starved of resources, right? Um, there's too much commitment. There's too many promises. Uh, the money's going other places. The state and the federal government are taking way more of their share than they, they ever have. Uh, our toleration for taxes, our expectations of, of lower government, of, of local government, have never been lower. Our tolerance for uh, for paying for it has never been lower. Our expectations, in many ways, have never been higher. Um, you know, we 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 have this um, mismatch today uh, at the local government level, and I hear in our dialogue a, a whole lot of uh, people who. I think very naturally for human beings want to embrace some type of, of grand solution, grand, grand way of doing things. And what I'm suggesting is that we have to get back to doing things incrementally. We have to get back to probing uncertainty incrementally. I think our lack of resources will help make that case. Um, but even if, you know, even in the interim and even if we don't, I think we can benefit a lot from starting to think this way, starting to move this way, starting to act this way. Um, the debate that I got in with the the market urbanist this week, and boy, uh, what a what a bizarre conversation. I, I I won't go into it too much because it was in a, a private group, and I I gave it a lot of time, and I gave it a lot of time because it started out very confusing to me, and then it became uh, you know combative and and even more confusing actually. And then ended up in a place where I just kind of had to accept um, that we weren't going to agree on some things. With a group that I thought that we agreed on, you know, like I thought like the Venn diagram overlap between uh, strong towns and market urbanism was actually pretty high. Uh, Not so high. Um, But the thing that uh, was really the dividing line uh, was, you know, this notion that we should build incrementally. And I wrote about... California's housing crisis this week. If you listen to the podcast on uh, 
or the week ahead podcast, Rachel asked me about it and I, I, I kind of chatted a little bit about it, but I had all these other kind of thoughts coming at me on the screen at the same time. And, and I, 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 I was, I was rather frustrated uh, with the whole thing at that point. I, th- I think I figured out a little bit more now what they're getting at. Um, but the, you know, the market urbanism people tend to, they call themselves, you know, more libertarian, um, which in their case is, you know, truly like no, you know, no rules, no limitations um, when it comes to building. Uh, the idea is that, uh, you know, if, if, we are forced to build incrementally, which is, you know, essentially one of our central suggestions, you know, that every neighborhood by right be allowed to build to the next increment of intensity, but no more. Um, if we're limited to that, uh, we're, we're, you know, not only stepping on people's liberty, but we're actually in, you know, missing out on the opportunity to build housing that people want uh, we're going to make housing artificially more expensive. We're going to impoverish people. We're going to lead to gentrification. It's going to have all these negative impacts. Just let us build towers. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've written extensively on why I think this is a bad approach. And it, it really gets back to the idea that I am not certain on what the problem is today. I'm, 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 I'm not completely certain that I understand what's going on. A lot of people look at, you know, the, the crazy housing prices right now in places like San Francisco and L.A. and San Diego, uh, New York, you know, Vancouver, Seattle, Austin. They, they look at these crazy housing prices and they're, they're extremely confident on what the problem is, right? Uh, and largely, they're extremely confident on, you know, if you are right of center, if you're one of these market urbanist people, um, you can pin the blame on the not in my backyard NIMBY type people, uh, government regulation that artificially limits the amount of housing and all the bureaucracy you have to go to in order to build. If we could just get rid of those things, force the NIMBYs to allow a building in their neighborhood, take away their, their power to resist it, um, remove zoning regulations and streamline approval processes. We could build our way out of this problem and housing prices would come down and we'd have this great flourishing and, and prosperity. If you go to the, the, the left of center and, you know, I, I think, I think the Mark and Herminus, actually, after having a dialogue with them now for a week are, are quite a bit right of center. Um, I think the counter reaction to that, the NIMBY, uh, groups are quite a bit left of center. Um, but the idea that, you know, the more housing we build, uh, just makes it worse for everybody. Uh, we're building, you know, we, we take poor housing and we replace it with luxury housing. And all that does is just kick poor people out and, and let uh, wealthy people move in. And, uh, you know, uh, the idea that the way we solve this is by somehow forcing developers to do things that are at a net loss in the marketplace that, you know, somehow charging other people more for housing uh, is going to make housing cheaper for you know, other people at a scale that is actually going to matter. I find these arguments to be, you know, incoherent and simplistic because really, you know, and, and let me just throw in, let me just throw in one thing. And I, I don't, I don't want to go all Ron Paul on you, but you know, tell me what the effect of the federal reserve is on all these housing prices. 
that has nothing to do with a local approval process. It has nothing to do with luxury housing being built. It has, it has nothing to do with, you know, what your neighbor does across the street. Tell me what the federal reserve buying up every, you know, mortgage that was originated for eight years, keeping interest rates at near zero, you know, for, for almost a decade now. Um, you know, tell me the effect that all this liquidity has had on housing prices. I can tell you the policy goal of those things. The policy goal was to reinflate the housing bubble because the bursting of the housing bubble was catastrophic and we had to get prices back up. What effect has that had? Is that long-term sustainable? Is that viable? Is that something that will endure? If it is discovered today that housing prices are artificially too high and, and I have to tell you, uh, I don't understand, and, and I know people have just like brushed this off and said, "Well, whatever, Chuck, you you know, you you just don't get it." I don't understand how you can have a city where half the population cannot afford the houses. Like, I I don't. I how does that even work? How does that work? It it doesn't make any sense. Like on paper, it doesn't make any sense. If if people can't afford it, then how are they paying for it? Right. I, there's a lot of people rolling their eyes right now, Chuck, like, yo, you don't get it. I, I do. I mean, I get people live two, three in an apartment, right? Uh, you know, they, they split rent with other people. They, they make, okay, you can't have a long-term stable situation where, you know, the median family can't afford the median family home. It, 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 it is not a stable situation. It won't work. Something is going to have to change. Either uh, the family size is going to change, right? Uh, more people are going to live together. Um, they're going to change, you know, the economics of that, that housing relationship. Either that or, uh, you know, people are getting money from somewhere else. And, you know, for a long time in the run-up in the housing bubble in the 2000s, people couldn't afford the homes, but it didn't matter because they were cashing out the equity all the time and using that to... Uh, to make things work, right? They were using that to cash flow their life. So, you know, you, you look and you just say like these, these anomalies can't persist. They're not, uh, they're not viable over the long term. They may be a short term anomaly, but they're not. So what happens when those things work themselves out, right? What, what happens when those things work themselves out? I, I'm, I don't know, right? I, I don't know. But I'm not confident that going in with some like one size fits all big, massive solution. We're going to force developers to do this on a big scale. We're going to remove all these, you know, building regulations and just build towers all over the place. To me, what we're doing is we're just setting the stage for like the next thing that's going to be really screwed up. The way we probe uncertainty is by building incrementally, by, by, by moving forward incrementally. And so our solution, the Strong Towns approach, when it comes to housing affordability, has been that we need to build everywhere. We need to build incrementally over a broad area over a long period of time. Uh, every neighborhood should be allowed to build to the next increment of intensity by right. There should be no way a NIMBY can stop that. There should be no way that, you know, you, you shouldn't have a long approval process. In my ideal world, you should be able to walk into City Hall at 9 a.m. with a permit, you know, with a request to build in the next increment 
And by noon, you should walk out with your permit and be able to start building. That, to me, that is, what, that is what a system should look like. But I wouldn't then go to the next increment beyond that, right? I wouldn't, uh, you know, jump over two or three or four increments. I wouldn't go from single-family home to six-story condo unit, right? I, I, I think that is a distortion. And I think that is, um, you know, not probing uncertainty incrementally. That's like rushing all in. And, and let me just give you, let me, let me just give you one uh, narrative here to kind of crystallize, you know, what, what I'm suggesting. When you build a, a tower, right, or when you go out and build a 400-unit you know, subdivision, take your pick, right? Take your pick, whichever one you, whichever one you desire the most, take your pick. You go out and build 400 single-family homes all at once. You go out and build a big tower all at once. What do, you, what do you have? Well, you have something that in its initial condition is, uh, in a sense, maximized uh, the value of the building to the value of the land. You have something that is essentially in its, in its peak, peaked-out state. Over time, uh, it will start to age. And you can see this in single-family housing subdivisions where you have, you know, 20 homes, 50 homes, 400 homes, all built at the same time. What happens is you come back 25 years later, and, and what do you see? Everybody's sidewalk has gone bad at the same time. Everybody's roof has gone bad at the, at the same time. Everybody's windows start to, uh, you know, lose that little bit around the edge and, and start to look weathered and, and, you know, the seals start to, to go bad and, and you see things start to get mold and look, look out of place, look, uh, look bad. Um, all this stuff goes bad, but it goes bad at the same time. Right. We didn't build it incrementally. We didn't build a little bit here and a little bit there and then, you know, continue to progress over time. We just build it all at once to a finished state and it all goes bad at the same time. If you have a tower, right, the whole thing goes bad all at once. Right. All of those, all those little window trim, the, 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 all those gaskets go bad at the same time. They all have the same lifespan. They all go bad at the same time. Right. All of the, uh, <laughs> All of the wall, 70s wallpaper that you put on, right? That's just like a brutal mess to get off. All of that looked bad at the same time, right? So what you've done is you've, in a sense, put all of your, you know, I'll use the old phrase, you put all your eggs in one basket. You, you've you essentially attached yourself to one life cycle, one beginning and end, one outcome. And what you're relying on is that either... You'll do it so well that it will be maintained and taken care of and loved and, and, and endure. Or you just, you know, are not thinking about it. You just don't care. It just doesn't matter to you what happens in the future. Those are for people in the future to figure out. This is where my prism of looking at things from a city standpoint comes in. Because for me, what I see is... On one side, you have this market urbanism argument, right? Let's just go out and build towers. And let's, let's, people want to be in the downtown, so let's put a thousand units down there and let's, you know, let's beat down prices by just increasing supply. Let's meet demand with supply, and that will create this market equilibrium. And I see on the other side, uh, this idea that, you know, don't change my neighborhood. I don't want incremental growth. I'm not willing to accept a granny flat next door. I'm not willing to accept an ADU. 
don't you dare put two families under one household. That is offensive to me. No, 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 I won't do that. And what, what I see are two um, extreme views, neither of which are really viable over the long term for the city. And, and understand, I'm not talking about the city as in like the bureaucrats that work at City Hall or the mayor or the city council running for re-election. I'm talking about the city as in like the municipal corporation of which we are all a member. In other words, <laughs> I own a piece of land in a corporation known as the city of Brainerd. And in order for my piece of land to do well and to function and to create wealth for me and to create prosperity for me, uh, you know, something that will endure that I can hand on to my, my descendants at some point in the future. Uh, you know, if, if that is my dream for this piece of land that I have purchased, that I have a home on that I live in, what I need is for this corporation known as the city of Brainerd to also prosper and do well. And if you looked at the strong towns narrative to any degree, what you see is that our cities are massively fragile. They are falling apart. They are financially bankrupt. They have more promises than they have the ability to keep. And so if you're a market urbanist wanting to build towers all over the place and you don't care if, if, if the bottom falls out of that market, you don't care what happens. You, you think maybe even like bankruptcy of those places is good because it will just make housing cheaper and more affordable. You're completely overlooking the fact that the tax revenue and the wealth for building that and for sustaining all that stuff comes from this tax base that you're just like flippantly, uh, you know, disregarding. Uh, on the other side, if you are the NIMBY, if you are the one who insists that like my neighborhood is under glass, it is not allowed to change. I pay my taxes. This is what I bought in for. What you are doing is you are handcuffing your city and guaranteeing that it will fail. I look at our cities and I see them heading into times of deep stress. And even if you're, uh, you know, a, a city like San Francisco, where, boy, it just seems like, you know, y y despite uh, whatever you might do to screw things up, you, you just can't screw things up, right? There's so much tech money being thrown at you. There's so much demand for being there. There's so much growth in it. You could be the most incompetent city in the world. You could run as a local government just like the worst place, and it's going to work out really well. It seems like that today, right? It seems like that today. But, <laughs> um, you know, when we, when, we, when we look back in time, we can see that in, in, the, in you know, the lifetime of people that have been around today, it's not always been that way. We can also see many, many examples of cities that were at this, like, you know, generational high uh, only to have essentially over, you know, overbuilt, overpromised, overextended, particularly when they do it in one dimension. And I, you, know, you just look at Detroit, one of the greatest cities in the world, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Literally, one of the top cities, one of the top handful of cities in the world, huge, you know, ornate opera houses, massive public investment, just a gorgeous, gorgeous city. And, you know, uh, made, you know, all these investments at the top, believing that, you know, this is what great cities do. And they were the wrong investments. They were the wrong investments. 
How do you know? How do you know? You don't. And I think at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that we don't. And that acknowledgement will get us to a place where we can start to you know, act in a prudent, disciplined way to probe uncertainty incrementally, to take small incremental steps, to intentionally limit our reach, not because we don't dream big, but because we are in absolute awe and humbled by the wisdom and the knowledge that was built by our ancestors over thousands of years of them building incrementally. And if we can just be adequately humbled by that, I think that we can stop this flailing around, this, uh, you know, uh, uh, this uh, almost like charlatan approach to ourselves where we lurch from one massive you know, solution to another massive solution from one set of charlatans to another set of charlatans and actually get back to in our neighborhoods, in our communities, building incrementally in a way that we know will build wealth, in a way that we know will lead to prosperity, in a way that we know will make our cities healthy and stable. And do that over a broad area, right, for for a lot of people. I urge you to uh, to you know stand with humility, and and be comfortable with that. Be comfortable with not knowing. Be comfortable with not having the exact answer, and be comfortable with and, and confident really with saying I don't know. So let's try some things and see what we can figure out. Thanks everybody for listening. You uh, all take care out there. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. You're an inspiration to me. We need your help. If you think the strong towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.